Thank you for listening to Desert Spring United Methodist Sunday Sermon. We're glad you found us and that you chose to be part of our church. Online listeners, you are a significant part of our church community, and we're grateful you're with us. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. If you would like to engage with our staff, we can be found on Facebook, Vimeo, and Instagram. Or call us at 702-256-5933. Thank you, Lou. That was beautiful. Thank you. For the past couple of weeks, I've been blessed to be able to officiate at several weddings. And I love officiating at weddings. Every wedding has its own story. Over the course of my ministry, I've officiated at a lot of weddings, which means I have a lot of stories. One of those stories, this one goes back quite a while to a former church. It was a wedding that had to be perfect. Everything about it had to be perfect. The bride's mother insisted that everything be perfect. The bride agreed everything needed to be perfect. And all the preparations that went into it, I mean, it was perfect. The day of the wedding came and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they looked perfect. The decorations were perfect. The ceremony began with the processionals and the attendants to the wedding all took their spots and it was perfect. And then it was time for the bride to enter. An usher walked down the center aisle and leaned over up in front to pick up a rope to unroll. What are those things called? Yeah, one of those. <laughs> to, for the bride to enter on. And the usher pulled on that runner and it didn't unroll. So he pulled on it again and it didn't unroll. So he pulled on it again and it didn't unroll. Then he got down on his hands and knees to try to figure out why the runner wouldn't unroll. And then the, the groom's father jumped up and ran over and tried to help him to make the thing unroll. And then a few of the groomsmen jumped down there and they started trying to help the thing unroll. And meanwhile, the bride's mother began to cry and I could see the bride out, in the, out waiting to enter, wiping the tears from her face too. So much for the perfect wedding. I suggest that we just leave the runner, bring the bride in, get the wedding going. She made her entrance. I reminded them of perfect love, and the wedding went on. Every wedding has its own story. I remember another one where the guy who was standing in front of me didn't look so well. Now, I'm very attentive at weddings. I pay attention to the bride and the groom because there's a lot of stress and, and you know, people can, can faint. And so I'm, I watch their eyes and if ever they start to glaze over, I'll stop and I'll tell them to take a breath. I'll tell them to bend their knees. And I take some pride in having never lost anybody to fainting at a wedding. But this guy, it wasn't that his eyes were glazing over. He just didn't look so well. And as the ceremony went on, he looked worse and worse and worse. By the time I got done with my little sermon, he was green. So I stopped and I said, do you need to be excused for a minute? He shook his head yes and bolted out of the sanctuary. He just ran out. And so we waited and we waited and we waited. 
I suggested we play a little music while we're waiting, and we waited. About five minutes or so passed, and the groom came walking back in. He looked a little better. So he stood up in front, we exchanged vows, we exchanged rings, and then came the kiss. (laughs) I knew what had happened, so what went through my mind was, for the bride, this is the better for worse part (laughs) of it. But every wedding has its story. One last quick story. This one goes way, way back. The wedding was getting ready to begin. The groom was out greeting people, kind of working the crowd, greeting people. The bride was in the bride's room with her mother. And her mother was pinning her veil on her. It was the last thing to be done before the beginning of the wedding. And as the bride's mother was pinning the veil on her, the mother was saying to her, it's not too late to change your mind. I will go out and call off the wedding. You can still say no, the bride's mother was saying to the bride. Now the bride ignored the mother's words. And for that, I'm grateful because the bride was Jerry, my wife. (laughs) I was the groom out working the crowd. It took Jerry's mother a little while to get used to the idea of me. But to her credit, on the day of our wedding, I was 24 years old and Jerry was 18. And so I get it. I get it. But every wedding has a story. Today's scripture is about a wedding. It's recorded in the Gospel of John and only in the Gospel of John. All right, the very beginning of the Gospel. It's the first miracle in the Gospel. And John wants to make certain that we hear this story for a very important reason. A word about weddings back then. Weddings have always been important to family life and sometimes to community life. But this was especially true 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus, where a wedding could be the center of community life. They were big deals, especially the parties that went along with the wedding. The wedding party might last a whole week, and the hosts of the party would hold nothing back. They were kind of the center of community life, a big, big deal. This particular wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus was invited to the wedding, as was his mother, Mary, which suggests that whoever was getting married were friends of Jesus' family, maybe even family members, because Jesus and Mary were there. Now, during the party, something went wrong. And what went wrong might not seem like that big of a deal to us today. But it was a really big deal back then. It was a statement about the hosts and their lack of preparedness for this great community event. It was a big deal. And what happened that started to ruin the party was they ran out of wine. And this bothered Mary so much that she went to her son Jesus and asked him to do something about it. His response is, well, what does that have to do with me? This isn't my time, which might be sort of like saying, this isn't about me, this is about them. But I can imagine Mary giving Jesus one of those looks that a mother can give a child, and there's no mistaking what the look means. 
Because the next thing that happens is Mary instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. And Jesus tells them what to do. And then comes a miracle, this wonderful miracle. Jesus changes water into wine. A miracle. Although for the folks back then, it may not have been considered a miracle so much as a sign, a sign that was pointing toward something even greater. But whether we call it a miracle or a sign, it was extraordinary. Jesus turned this water into wine, and not just into any old kind of wine. It was good wine. It was the best wine. At the last service, Lou yelled out, it was Italian wine. Okay? It was the best wine. And the people at the party were amazed. They weren't amazed by the miracle of turning water into wine. Somehow, the miracle was kept from the guests. What they were amazed was that the host had saved such good wine for the end of the party. Normally, a host would serve their best wine first. And then when the guests' tastes became a little less discriminating, they'd bring out the ripple. Right? <laughs> but in this case, in this case, the best wine was saved for the end. It's a wonderful story. And talk about a party favor. A party favor. Jesus turning water into wine. Let's pause and listen to the reading of Scripture. From the book of John, second chapter, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had filled, drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, said, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
it's very rare to have a good bloom in Death Valley. You, you always get flowers somewhere in Death Valley, almost every month of the year, but to have a big bloom like this, which we hope will become a super bloom, which is beyond all your expectations, uh, that those are quite rare, maybe once a decade or so. I've lived in Death Valley for 25 years, and I've seen lots of blooms, lots of wildflower blooms in Death Valley. And I kept thinking I was seeing incredible blooms. I was always very excited until I saw one of these super blooms. And then I suddenly realized there are so many seeds out there just waiting to sprout, just waiting to grow. I had no idea that there was that much out there. When you get the perfect conditions, the perfect storm, so to speak, those seeds can all sprout at once. These areas that are normally just rock, just soil, just barren, not even shrubs, they're filled with life. So Death Valley really does go from being a valley of death to being a valley of life. But that's so brief because it's not a permanent thing, it's just temporary. It's here for a moment and then it fades. chapter, the first verse. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and with singing. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I saw that video, I, I enjoyed it and thought to myself, now if that park ranger were a preacher, we would understand the metaphor. You know how a valley of death becomes a valley of life. How there are countless seeds awaiting the right conditions from which life will spring forth and blossom how there's an abundance, an abundance, just waiting, an abundance of grace. Today's scripture story is about an abundance of grace. Jesus turns water into wine. And it's not just a little wine, not just a bottle of wine. It's like maybe 180 gallons of water he turns into wine. So much that it was hard to even conceive of. It wasn't just abundant, it was extravagant, extravagant, the amount of wine. It was like it could never, ever run out. But before we get lost in the wine, Let's spend a few more minutes on the desert floor. In the scripture, we hear that in the home of the host, there are six stone jars, each one holding maybe as much as 30 gallons. 
these jars made of stone, which gives us this image of them being strong and heavy, maybe unmovable even. These strong stone jars. In them is water, but the water is not drinking water. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is for the rite of purification. It has to do with the laws around what's clean and what's unclean. Purification. And so these jars stood as a symbol of law, as a symbol of clean and unclean, as a symbol of what holiness required. And it was these jars filled with water that Jesus then works this miracle. He turns the water into wine. And don't miss the symbolism in this. Those very containers, jars that represented that represented the religious practice of the day were used to do something new, brand new. Like out of the traditions of the old birthed something new that folks would have never, ever imagined. Water into wine. And we understand the sign of this story because the sign of this story points us toward the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. Remember at the very end of his ministry, he's he's at another party. And at that party, he takes a glass of wine. He blesses it. And then he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup of the new covenant in his blood. The wine represents the very blood of Christ, his sacrifice, and a new covenant that can be ours. As Jesus turns that water into wine, the focus shifts from law to grace. As he turns that water into wine, the focus shifts from ritual purification and needing to atone for our own sins to how it is that Jesus has already done everything necessary for our atonement. The focus shifts from the importance of law when it comes to living a holy life to the importance of grace and mercy those things that are at the very heart of Almighty God. Water into wine. Sinners into saints. Strangers into friends. A new covenant. And this new covenant is established by God who invites us to be a part of this covenant. And all we have to do is drink of the wine. All we have to do is say yes. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. And a transformation begins in our own lives, like our own lives changing from water into wine. A transformation begins in our own lives. The transformation begins in a big way because suddenly we are a part of a new covenant. A new covenant. And all that that brings... our lives. But that's the beginning of our life. 
in this covenant. What follows is changes, changes to our lives as we are changing from sinners to saints, as our brokenness is being healed. Little by little, our lives are changing in very real ways. The Christian life is all about a life that is being changed into something brand new. Brand new. This is the covenant to which we are invited. And the, the more we grow in these changes, the more we grow in our faith, the more we begin to recognize that this covenant, it isn't just about me and it's not just about you. That there are countless seeds around us awaiting the right conditions to spring forth and to blossom. This is about creation itself. It's about all people of which we are blessed to be but a part. This past Thursday, I was in Phoenix for a meeting. It was a meeting where all of the pastors in this area were required to attend a meeting with the bishop. And so Pastor Tim and I flew down to Phoenix for this meeting. And because all pastors were required, Andrew was there. I got to sit next to Andrew, and that was, that was great. That was a highlight. The meeting took place in one of our historic churches. And it began, it began with worship in their sanctuary, historic sanctuary. Maybe, maybe you can picture a cathedral sanctuary, kind of long and narrow, with two rows of pews extending back, very high ceilings, or very high walls, a ceiling 35 feet up in the air, a cathedral ceiling, these tall walls adorned with stained glass windows all the way down. Up here where, in what we call the chancel area, there was a pulpit that was elevated up into the air with stairs that you'd have to walk up to get into the pulpit. Behind was the choir, like here. And behind the choir were, was the ranks of pipes for their pipe organ. This huge, huge pipe organ with lots of ranks of pipes. As the worship began and the pipe organ played its first notes, you could hear the echo through this cathedral sanctuary. If you clapped, it would take five seconds for the echo to stop. The sanctuary built around this pipe organ so that when the organ music stopped, the music continued to reverberate, continued to echo on as if the music would never, ever stop. The first speaker stepped up into that elevated pulpit. And we know why it was elevated. It wasn't elevated simply so people could see the speaker. It was elevated to give an impression that the person filling the pulpit was somehow a little closer to God. Pastors were taught. They were taught that they never disclosed anything about their personal life. Because if people knew about a pastor's personal life, they would know that they were sinners like everybody else. And yet they were supposed to represent, symbolize something a little wholer, our best selves. And so the speaker would step up into that and we could see that 
image. Well, as I sat in the sanctuary, I was just struck by not just what I was experiencing in that room, but how different it is from here. How different it is from our sanctuary where we're spread this way to create a greater sense of intimacy. Where we have no pipe organ. Because churches today cannot afford pipe organs. They cost millions of dollars. A church that I served when I was in Princeton, New Jersey had to do repairs on its pipe pipe organ. They had to raise $1.4 million to do repairs on the pipe organ. They cost too much. People don't put pipe organs in churches anymore. And nobody learns how to play them anyway. So it's not like you can get people to play them anymore. It's just picturing how different it is. We don't have that elevated pulpit, right? I just stand out here kind of exposed. And I tell you the stories about my life. I mean, you know, Jerry's mother tried to talk her out of marrying me, right? (laughs) We don't hide that anymore because I know, we know now that more important than the words that I speak is the condition of my heart from which those words come. And more important than how eloquent I might or might not be is how it is that you experience me having a heart for God and a heart for you in your lives. Oh, how it's all changed so much. So many changes. I can't even begin to imagine uh, the countless changes that have taken place in ministry and church life just in the short time that I've been a pastor. So I sat in that sanctuary with all of that going through my mind and recognizing that today I would be preaching on this story from the Gospel of John, of Jesus turning water into wine. And it was sitting in there that it was as if I started to feel the wind begin to blow a little, the wind of the Spirit, as I began to understand some things that maybe I should have known all along but never really thought about them. And suddenly they were kind of coming to my mind. So I began to understand that all of these changes that are taking place are simply preparations, conditions being made right for the countless seeds awaiting to spring forth and to blossom. God isn't finished with us yet. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And all that we have been doing and all that we are doing is a part of this unfolding plan of God where one day we will see this super bloom. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And somehow we get to be a part of that. We we get to be a part of that. How good is that? The best is yet to come. God isn't finished with us yet. And so here we are. Here we are. The people of God. You and me. 
people who've been invited into a covenant and many of us, maybe most of us, maybe all of us have said yes to being a part of that covenant. People whose lives are being changed slowly into the best that they can be. All a part of church that's slowly being changed into the best that it can be. Each of us with a part to play in God's unfolding plan for this world, this creation. And what are we to do? What are we to do? Give witness to the abundant grace of God. Give witness to the mercy of God. To love as we are loved. To welcome people into the party as we have been welcomed into the party in this party where the grace of God is in such abundance that it can never, ever run out. There is enough grace for everyone, for everyone. Welcome to the party and thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Desert Spring United Methodist Church. New sermons are posted weekly. Follow us to get updates and news from your church.